1: Welcome to the New Books Network.
2: Hello, and welcome to the New Books Network's Middle East Studies podcast. I'm your host, Ruben Silverman, a researcher at Stockholm University's Institute for Turkish Studies, and with me today is Professor Max Weiss. Max Weiss is an associate professor of history and affiliated faculty in comparative literature at Princeton University. His first monograph, In the Shadow of Sectarianism Law. Shiism and the Making of Modern Lebanon was published in 2010 by Harvard University Press. But even more relevant to our discussion today are his translations, including a 2012 translation of Samari Azbeck's A Woman in the Crossfire, Diaries of the Syrian Revolution, and a translation of Nihad Siris's novel The Silence and the Roar in 2013. Both are discussed in his new book, which we will be talking about today, Revolution's Aesthetic, a Cultural History of Bath, is Syria, published by Stanford University Press in 2022. Now, the first thing I'd like to ask you is to tell a little bit about yourself and your background, how you became interested in Lebanon and Syria, and how your interests have become focused now on art and films and literature.
1: Well, first of all, Ruben, thank you so much for having me on. It's a pleasure to speak with you today. Um, I was trained as a historian of the modern. Middle East and um, spent many years uh, living, uh, studying and doing research in the region, including living in Egypt, Lebanon, and Syria. As you mentioned, um, my first book, In the Shadow of Sectarianism, is uh, an intellectual, legal, and religious history of the Lebanese Shiite community during the first half of the 20th century, specifically under French mandate colonial rule. And uh, in that book, I made an argument about the making of Lebanese sectarianism through a reading of Islamic court records, French colonial archives, and um, periodicals published within the Shia milieu in Lebanon during that period. Now, while I was living in Lebanon, during the first part of the 2000s, in addition to doing the research for this book, uh, I was simultaneously reading uh, a lot of Arabic literature and beginning as a hobby to translate Arabic literature into English. And it was during this time that I became particularly interested in Syrian literature. And it was out of my interests in um, Syrian literature and then with time uh, film and intellectual history that I began to craft a research agenda that would focus on Syria in particular. And once I uh, had finished the Lebanon book and was able to dedicate my time and attention to working on um, Syria, uh, things started to change dramatically in the country. And uh, you mentioned my translation of Samar Yazbek's Diaries of the Syrian Revolution. Well, after the Syrian Revolution began in early 2011, traveling to spending time in and certainly doing research in Syria became quite a, a fraught enterprise, and it was Uh, For those two reasons, number one, my interest shifting towards literature and intellectual history, and number two, the political circumstances in the country making it downright impossible to do uh, archival research or even move around the country, move in and out of the country, quite difficult, also shifted me in the direction of uh, cultural studies and intellectual history.
2: As As a way of starting, as a way of giving some background, The book focuses on literature and films since Hafez al-Assad came to power in 1970. And in 1970, he came to power, established personal rule, eliminated other factions of the Ba'ath Party, which had already been in power since the 60s. And during the 30 years of his life, um, what sort of aesthetics did Assad's regime promote? And can we talk about something that's a Ba'athist or Assadist Sa- a art, a Ba'athist or Assadist aesthetic?
1: Yeah, one of the reasons that uh, I wanted to focus on the post-1970 period in this book uh, is that, well, first and foremost, this is a relatively understudied period in modern and contemporary Syrian history for reasons that have to do both with, I suppose, its recency, and so there hasn't been the kind of uh, perspective with which historians could bring to bear their methods and their insights, uh, but also because of the uh, importance of the coming to power of Hafez al-Assad and his supporters for the purposes of building a strong Syrian state. So while it's certainly true, as you mentioned, that from the early 1960s with the march 8th 1963 bath coup which is referred to by its exponents as a revolution and the subsequent february 1966 so-called neo baath coup that brought a left-wing faction of the Baath party to power indeed from as far back as syrian independence um, from french rule in 1946 the country had been in a state of turmoil Political tension, military factionalism, and infighting, which effectively stymied or hamstrung the political development of the country's institutions, and so the coming to power of Hafez al-Assad in November of 1970, and what is known as a corrective movement, uh, better understood as a coup d'état, as you as you mentioned. Uh, there was a pronounced effort and attempt to build Syrian national institutions. What this meant over time, however, was in addition to attempts to promote a certain agenda of economic modernization, social transformation, there was also a profound shift in terms of where resources in the country were flowing towards the consolidation of one-party rule, during which time the Ba'ath Party itself, the military, and especially the domestic security services, the Mukhabarat and its affiliated apparatuses, came to dominate the political field. Now, from that jumping-off point, what I try to do in the book is identify the cultural uh, ramifications of this Assadist state-building project. And so I refer to the cultural reflections of this project as a form of cultural revolution. Now, the term, which will be familiar to many coming out of the Chinese experience, the Russian experience, uh, and others, was not a term of art. That is to say, it was not a commonly used term, although the term would occasionally crop up in certain uh writings and speeches of baathist ideologues and political representatives i use the term more as a heuristic device and what i argue is that this uh cultural revolution perhaps in everything but name was animated by a certain kind of aesthetic ideology one i refer to as an Assadist Baathist aesthetic ideology it's a bit of an unwieldy term but the reason i hyphenate the assadist baathist is to indicate that there are different forms of Baathism, bathist ideology and practice, both at a very prosaic level in terms of ideological conflicts that I mentioned in terms of the series of coups that took place over the course of the 1960s, but also in terms of uh, cultural and intellectual orientation. So what I identify as an Assadist Ba'athist aesthetic ideology is one that effectively blended some of the prevailing forms of cultural production across the Arabic speaking world during the mid 20th century. That is to say, a certain commitment to various forms of pan Arab nationalism, Ba'athism being one of those uh, certain uh, intellectual commitments. Uh, emphasis on the term commitment, that is to say, a, an, an engagement with the committed culture or committed literature that uh, arrived in the Arabic speaking world by way of the existentialist tradition in France of uh, engaged literature, literature engagée, with its affiliated forms in film and other creative endeavors. Blending this set of intellectual concerns with what I identify as a newly emerging commitment on the part of the regime and its allies uh, to justify the consolidation of one party rule and in a sense to pay a certain amount of uh, homage to the virtues of heroic leadership as exemplified by hafaz al-assad the the leader so if you like one of the most uh, pronounced aspects of this aesthetic ideology is is to my mind a kind of blending of already existing uh, arab nationalist cultural orientations with a growing sense of uh support for um the virtues of heroic leadership as expressed through um, or subverted by um, literary fiction and other cultural forms.
2: Well, that's, that makes sense. So I guess what I'd like to do is maybe like look at one of the examples you talk about and sort of see how these, this plays out. Uh, you, one of the books you write about is hanamina's 1989 novel, End of a Brave Man. And in addition to being a novel, this is a TV show, I believe, as well. And so in what ways does a book like this, a piece of art, reflect these themes you're talking about? And in what ways does it maybe subvert them? Yeah,
1: um, I took Hanamina as one example of the kind of committed literature that fit rather well within the ideological parameters of the consolidating Assadist, Baathist ideological universe. Hanumina is perhaps the paradigmatic post-war Syrian writer. He was born in 1924, lived most of his life in the Syrian Northwest around Latakia, and he has written dozens of novels. There is a prestigious Syrian state literary prize in his name. His 1989 novel, End of a Brave Man, Nihayat Shijah is one of his later works. Him, his best known and uh, name-defining works were written in the 1960s and 70s. End of a Brave Man, in a sense, straddles the line that I was just talking about in the sense that the style of the novel is extremely discursive and straightforward. It tells the tale of a man named Mufid, who comes from the Syrian Northwest, living a rural and impoverished childhood. And the novel tracks his travels and travails as he seeks his fortune, both in the city and also at sea, living and working for some time as a sailor the novel is set during the time of the french mandate and i'll say something more about that in the moment uh, in a moment but the story uh places mufid within squarely within the narrative of syrian anti-colonial activism political organizing and highlights the challenges of uh, intellectual formation and fulfillment in such a time of uh unfreedom and uncertainty mufid gets mixed up in a number of uh forms of employment but then also finds his way into a series of criminal organizations where he uh, attempts to seek his own fortune even as he uh, runs afoul of some of these political bosses and unsavory types. He ultimately winds up in a French prison, which is a period of education and transformation for him. Over the course of his life, he is dramatically injured, having one of his legs amputated. He falls in love with a woman named Labiba. And along the way, we track how Mufid comes to terms with both the political transformations in the country and as well as his own growth and maturation and it's to my mind in the discussions of his own coming to terms coming to consciousness of his own masculinity as one of the defining features of his identity that uh, is one of the paramount themes and uh, most to to my mind interesting tropes of the novel and it's here uh, at the interface of this kind of set of political concerns that would have been legible Uh, And appealing to uh, an audience of readers who were by this point uh, familiar with the conventions of social realist prose, of intellectual concerns having to do with both challenging colonial and imperial forms of domination, as well as building a kind of national unity and independence, comes together with a direct engagement with some of the themes of heroism, masculinity, virtuous leadership, and social interaction that I mentioned was in a sense reflective of a kind of ascetist bathist aesthetic ideology. And so the nature of the brave man then uh, and his end become particularly resonant to my mind with the kind of ideological universe within which Hanamina was writing and his audience would have been Would have been reading. Um, You mentioned that the film was turned into a a wildly successful, um, beloved television serial. Interestingly enough, the television program ends in a different way than the novel. The novel ends with Mufid spiraling into a state of dejection and disappointment, ultimately Spoiler alert here, it is a 35-year-old novel, so I think spoilers are (laughs) acceptable. Uh, Mufid ends up putting a bullet into his own head in the novel. The end of The Brave Man is, in fact, his unraveling, which, if you like, does harken back to some of the most fundamental tropes of the existentialist tradition about the question of suicide and the tragic condition of the individual in a modern alienated society. By contrast, the television program ends at a moment of uh, confrontation between Mufid, who is now hobbled in a wheelchair, and one of the uh, unsavory types I mentioned before, who had been attempting to shake Mufid down for more money that he apparently owed to these To this group and in the climactic scene mufid uh and this man are on a bluff overlooking the water on the coast and mufid in a valiant move uh hurls himself at this individual in his wheelchair still and the two men topple over the edge of the cliff although we see nothing graphic depicting their end uh, presumably falling to their death together. So in a sense, what the television serial uh, accomplishes in its ending, and I should note as a, as a footnote here, the film was sponsored, uh, funded by a production company that is owned by a relative of Abdel Halim Khaddam, who is a representative of the regime and a close ally of Hafez al-Assad. So some television scholars have argued that this uh, in a sense uh, transforms what is a tragic ending in the novel into a kind of uh, heroic ending within which our hero Mufid uh, is willing to give his life for the cause of individual freedom, anti-corruption and a, a host of related, of related issues. So in a sense that, that difference, that divergence between the endings of the film and the television serial respectively reflect, to my mind, um, the countervailing forces that are at work within the Assadist-Ba'athist cultural sphere.
2: Well, you know, uh, it, it occurs to me as you're saying this, uh, you mentioned this is set during the um, mandate period, and does uh, several other of the p- things you, uh, pieces you look at are also set either during the mandate period or maybe during the sixty-seven War, uh, for example, but not necessarily contemporary. Uh, Do you see any reason for this in these uh, productions?
1: Absolutely. It's an important point. And the simplest explanation, which might be the best explanation, is that as in other circumstances of uh, authoritarian rule, the conditions of possibility for writing under Assadus the Assadist regime uh, were at varying degrees uh, restricted, and there was, and indeed still is, a robust censorship regime in place, which means that while there could be references made to universal issues such as individual responsibility, uh, political engagement, social solidarity, pan-Arab. Aspirations, uh, anti-imperial, anti-colonial, and so on, specific reference was not to be made to the regime itself or its avatars. So one would not find uh, much direct, hardly any direct reference to the leader himself, to the state, specifically in its Syrian incarnation. Government or politics could certainly be referenced in universal forms, but not directly referencing the Syrian regime of the time and therefore shifting the setting and the plot into earlier eras, most um, comfortably, if you like, that of the French colonial era, but similar uh, moves are made, as you mentioned, to the time of the 1967 war for reasons that we can get into a desirable moment to showcase and celebrate uh given that it is despite being defeat for crushing defeat for the arab armies at the hands of the israeli military in the six-day war became a kind of catalyst for a rejuvenated sense of the need for strong leadership across the arab world in the attempt to find its footing again Um, The focus on the French colonial period, however, um, is particularly useful in the sense that heroes and villains are much easier to map out. There is much less uh, discussion within Syrian nationalist discourse about the ambiguities of good and evil under colonial rule. The anti-colonial struggle for Syrian national independence is an unalloyed good It is uh, the kind of founding narrative of the independent Syrian nation state. And therefore, there may be analogous claims being made about the nature of politics and the relationship between um, the individual and society, the relationship between national society and local or international political power, but there are not the same. Uh, kind of entanglements between the stories that can be told in those earlier periods and novels and other forms of cultural production that emerge in the uh, later part of the 20th century. And indeed, as as I argue, and I think we'll talk about, uh, this changes dramatically after the death of Hafiz al-Assad in, in 2000.
2: Yeah, I mean, the the one last thing I did want to talk about before his death is um is the place of comedy, though. And I think this actually connects to what you were just saying, because I wanted to ask you about the comedian uh, Durad Lahim, because um, he's been criticized for support of the regime during the past decade. So when we look at his very popular 1980s and before films, these comedy films, do we see them... At the time, as legitimation of the regime, is there a criticism hidden in the comedy? Does he get comedy, in by doing some of these things you were just talking about—doing, looking at different time periods, looking at abstractions rather than concrete things—I thought maybe we could talk about that first.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Um, it's an important question, and as I was just describing the work of Hanamina, and there are other um, literary and non-literary works from this. Period that um, I devote attention to in in the book. uh, What I also wanted to emphasize is that there is uh, a range of uh, genres um, present in the Syrian cultural field during this period. And so I chose to focus on the writer, comedian, actor, and extremely well regarded public figure, Dureyd Laham. Well regarded. Up until the late 2000s, early 2010s, Uh, I do point out some of the early history of Dureid Laham's career, beginning in the realm of uh, theater, writing and starring in um, plays and then teleplays that were broadcast on Syrian television in his collaboration with, uh, most importantly, the writer, director, and actor Nihad Khalai, and the uh, much better known Syrian poet and intellectual Muhammad al-Marud. Now, those three collaborated on a series of plays and later films that made a huge impact on Syrian culture. With with echoes and repercussions well beyond Syria, such that Dureid Laham did become a figure of some note and repute across the Arabic-speaking world. Some compare him to figures like Woody Allen, Charlie Chaplin. Um, I have questioned whether Harpo Marx is an appropriate comparison. Whatever the case, Dureid Laham developed a signature style of comedic performance Through, although not limited to, his character, Gawar Tushi. The Gawar character, which in a sense would eventually kind of expand to encompass Laham's public persona, is a sort of everyman character, snarky, bumbling, yet always clever and capable of throwing out a well timed barb or a zinger. Now, where his earlier work, Kassak Yawatan, most importantly, Dayat Tishreen October Village, um, from the late 60s, early 1970s, um, were um, broadcast on television and became extremely popular in Syria. As a consequence, I focus instead on a series of commercial films that Um, Dureid Laham was involved in making, and in fact, the second and the third that I'll mention in a moment, uh, directing as well. So his 1982 film, The Empire of Gawar, 1984, The Border, perhaps his best known and perhaps Syria's um, best known, most widely acclaimed film, uh, and 1986's The Report, to my mind, all reflect the challenge That Dureid Laham as a figure presents for understanding not only the development of Syrian comedy, which is an important aspect of Syrian cultural history that still deserves further study, but also brings attention to this uh, stubborn question that has been at the core of Syrian studies more generally, I would say, from 1970 onward namely, the relationship between art. Uh, artistic work, and the state or state power. And because Empire of Gawar, I don't have time to talk about all three films, but to take the 1982 film Empire of Gawar as an example, we have a case here again in which the kind of conventions of realist fiction, in this case feature film, continue to harken back to the tradition of committed culture and so set the 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 film is set in a popular neighborhood of damascus interestingly during a time that it is not entirely possible to mark our, my best guess is this is set either in during the late ottoman period or the french colonial period and durade laham's character Gawar, uh is working as a barber And in order to make ends meet, we also discover that he is performing improvised medical procedures, including circumcision. So he is uh, up for anything and he is able to uh, move through his world with uh, a certain uh, amount of frictionlessness. Now, Laham, in this case Gawar, gets mixed up in some local political struggles between the people of the neighborhood and the local political boss, the boss being known as a Zayim, which means leader in Arabic, or as a Kabadai, which kind of means a strong man or a, or a thug. And through the process of mobilizing to challenge the power of the local Zayim, the neighborhood boss, Gawar himself soon rallies his neighbors and comrades and manages to topple the zaim in question ultimately uh, catapulting himself into the position of zaim so now we are in the titular empire of gawar as Gowar and his supporters now seek to expand their power by the end of the film uh overpowering the security station in the neighborhood which in a sense represents the center of political power. Now what I find particularly interesting about the film, for one thing, is its ending, which is an ambiguous one. The film ends in the midst of Roar's forces storming the Mahfar the security station. So we do not know how this is going to end. What we do know is that the nature of Loire's incipient leadership is reflective of but also in tension with some of those traits of virtuous leadership, heroism, the relationship between the individual and the collective, the relationship between political power and the masses. Uh, and ultimately, uh, one is left viewing this film with the kind of ambiguous feeling that leadership is wielded by one who has the authorization of the people and once he, and in this case a he, I would say for the most part in Syrian cultural production, the leader is cast as a he and that's meaningful um, is by definition, is intrinsically uh, equipped to carry out the will of the people. So the subversiveness that some find in Duret Laham's work, given his humorous disrespect for authority, is now refashioned over the course of the film as Gawar becomes the leader himself. So I think, again, there is a kind of double-sidedness to this film and it's its undecidability that I think is, is most profound about it on the one hand, the leader could be anyone, could be the everyman type, could be Gawar, the bumbling barber turned Zaim. But at the same time, the Zaim does fortify himself as a figure of power and authority. In other words, there is no destruction of the Zaim, of the leader as a figure. There may be a transition from a corrupt Zaim to a virtuous one, one who is capable of taking the interests and needs of his people into consideration. But again, we're now left here with the question, is the capital L leader, the big Zaim, who overshadowing all of this in 1982 is, of course, Hafez al-Assad, whether that position is itself subject to criticism or whether it is simply a position of power that is now reinforced through some kind of comedic uh, engagement.
0: This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stot or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda, whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe every day at Saks.com.
2: That's very interesting. So I guess, like you said, there is a big change in 2000. Assad dies. His son Bashir comes to power. And I mean, during the first, what, 10 years, there's this emphasis on neoliberal economic reforms and this kind of promise of political opening. So during this first 10 years... During the 2000s, you do describe a shift in some of the cultural production. For example, you think that there's something of a a change in literature that emphasizes speaking to people and speaking for people to literature and art that tries to speak with people. So maybe we can think about that. And you maybe can give some examples of this. And also you see a, a genre that's coming into, into view in this time period, which you call the Mkhabarat novel or um, the spying novel. So maybe we can think about these also, uh, this, this time period of the early 2000s and the changes you see during this time period.
1: Yeah, th- this book is a, a work of history. Therefore, periodization is important. Um... One might say that the periodization I employ in the book is a rather conventional one in the sense that I see 1970 to 2000, the period of Hafez al-Assad's rule, as a, a meaningful one, and that following his death in the summer of 2000, the coming to power of his son Bashar, this constitutes the beginning of a new period one that um, rather formulaically as I say I track until 2011 and the beginning of the Syrian uprising um, we can uh, discuss uh, as historians and scholars of Syria the appropriateness of this periodization but that's what we're working with here one of the most pronounced changes that I noticed in the sphere of the spheres of uh, literature and, and film. And, and I think one can find echoes in other genres and and beyond the cultural sphere. In fact, after 2000 is a relative opening and liberalisation of speech, of creative expression, and of cultural production. You mentioned how during the early 2000s, there was great hope for a kind of a more radical opening. In Syria, there were demands made by intellectuals, artists, and others in the form of the so-called Damascus Spring, the Damascus Declaration, Letter of the 99, and other public statements that were put out between 2000 and 2005, leading up to the newly introduced so-called social market economy, which was, in a sense, the ramification of that neoliberal um, agenda promoted by Bashar al-Assad's regime, uh, which had both political economic aspects as well as cultural manifestations or reflections. And this is what I um, talk about in, this is chapter four of the book. Now, I seek to understand the struggle around aesthetic ideology in Baathist Syria as one That does not simply get constituted by what I call the aesthetics of power promulgated by the state and its supporters, but is also complicated uh, by, subverted by, and, and even directly challenged by other aesthetic orientations, which I refer to as aesthetics of resistance as well as aesthetics of solidarity. Now, those three aesthetic forms, in my understanding of this cultural production, are. Uh, filled with communicative or expressive languages that I characterize as speaking to or speaking for in the case of the regime's aesthetics of power, but which I contrast to a kind of speaking against or speaking with as expressions of what I just called the aesthetics of resistance and aesthetics of solidarity. And in the midst of this transition from uh, Hafez. His regime to Bashar's regime. Uh, one of the moments of opening that I identified through my reading of Syrian uh, literature during this period was a willingness to directly engage with the state itself in increasingly bold and outspoken ways. I mentioned a few moments ago that during the period of Hafez al-Assad's rule, there was scant space for direct engagements with the leader himself, the state apparatus, specific references to Syria generally would be uh, frowned upon. With this transformation in Syrian political, public and cultural life during the 2000s, there emerged a new form of writing, specifically novelistic writing that engaged with a critique of political power that directly targeted the state and its security apparatus. I draw on a term introduced by the Lebanese poet, critic and writer Abbas Beydoun, which he calls the Mukhabarat novel, Mukhabarat being the state security services. For Beydoun, the Mukhabarat novel is a novel in which the Mukhabarat plays some kind of role, whether in terms of setting and backdrop or in terms of characters and characterization. And uh, to my mind, the direct engagement with the characterization of the figuring or figuration of the state through its security apparatus represents an opportunity taken by Syrian writers to use this moment of opening in order to shed a different kind of light on the workings of state power in everyday life in Syria. One example of this is a 2009 novel by a Syrian woman writer named Rosa Yassin Hassan, a novel entitled Rough Draft or Prova. The novel is uh, primarily set within a Mukhabarat office, a security station in the Syrian Northwest, where a Mukhabarati a security agent, is engaged with surveillance activities, listening in on tapped telephones around the country in order to root out political dissidents in order to monitor the situation in order to carry out the state's edicts the character at the core of this novel is himself personally using the materials gathered through the listening process in order to populate for himself the draft the titular rough draft of his first novel so he the Mukhavarati, is transforming his surveillance activities into an attempted although never completed literary attempt a literary experiment and here then we have an example of the at once humanization of the security apparatus you might say putting a human face onto the faceless apparatus of spying and surveillance that simultaneously um, calls attention to the unjust, the invasive, the oppressive circumstances under which those characters, which the Mukhabarati refers to as his characters, must endure, must live through in the repressive authoritarian police state that is Syria during that period another feature of of this novel in particular that is that is interesting is its experimental format the novel is episodic it is written between a third-person omniscient narrative voice, which is that of the Muqabarati, as well as first-person narrative voices of the characters in the novel, each chapter indeed being spoken in a different voice. Moreover, at a formal level, the novel is interrupted and incomplete. There are footnotes that pepper the text, and these footnotes are the personal notes to self written down by the Mukhabarati for future reference when he returns to edit and revise his novel information into a finished product. And by the same token, its unfinishedness is a particularly challenging feature of the novel for the reader because one must return to a fundamental question of literary studies generally which is the question of narrative and narration so one wonders what kind of a text one is reading when encountering the scattered notes the incomplete uh, transcriptions of the surveillance uh, officers work here we are reading a published novel that is an unfinished manuscript and the question of voice therefore becomes quite complicated and so the notion of speaking with as opposed to speaking for or speaking for as opposed to speaking with is uh, difficult to reconcile here the muhabharati himself obviously holds the power in constructing this narrative however incomplete it may be in the form it comes to us. While at the same time, the capture of those voices of ordinary people, their concerns, in some instances, their pathologies and their difficulties, similarly presented. And in a sense, it is that splintered, fragmented narrative voice that gives lie to the omniscient, commanding presence of a state-sponsored aesthetics of power that would speak to or speak for the Syrian population. And in that respect, I find that in the post-2000 period, there is a kind of scrambling of not only the political, but also the aesthetic conventions of Syrian, in this instance, writers, novelists.
2: No, that makes a lot of sense. And I mean, yes, it, you're, you're right to say that there's period, periodization can be you know, somewhat artificial sometimes and challenged sometimes, but at the same time, events really do have effects and force people to think about new questions and try new new things. And by that same token, the start of the revolution in 2011 and onwards, that also is a new period in literature and cultural production. So, I mean, As we think about that, the early years of the Syrian Civil War, um, well, you look at a number of different novelists and uh, filmmakers and how they tried to think about and deal with the Syrian Civil War, and you consider how artists have challenged regime, but also, and I thought this was particularly interesting, you talk about how artists have also tried to challenge the experience, right, the sensory overload that's part of the war, so I was hoping you could talk a little about this. You say that artists are doing—they're trying to create works of—you say—slow witness amid all these atrocities and all the overwhelming information that they're experiencing. So maybe if we can talk about this concept of slow witness and how a work like, for example, Samar Yazbek's *A Woman in the Crossfire*. Uh, how does that exemplify this?
1: Yeah, I agree. I agree with you that that the periodization that I, I track in the novel does make sense. And certainly in the case of the Syrian revolution and subsequent civil war, um, 2011 is a monumental turning point. Now, whereas there was a, a kind of slow uh, and, and uncertain transformation in Syrian culture during the first decade of the 20th century all of the restrictions and obstacles to creative expression came down. The way that Syrian activists and ordinary people described this sensation during the early days of the revolution was as feeling the fall of the fear barrier. It's a kind of term that appeared all over the place. And the irony of that moment, of course, was unknowable in the sense that different kinds of fear would very quickly fill that vacuum as the country descended into a kind of unimaginable horrorscape of local and then national and international conflict. One of the hallmarks of that early period of the Syrian revolution was the breakdown of epistemological certainty. This is something that I argue in the book that is uh, particularly pronounced in the case of the Syria war. It has something to do with the attempted monopolization of the means of media by the regime, its promotion of disinformation campaigns and the like. It was also made possible by the counter moves made by Those Syrian revolutionaries and their supporters who used available technology, especially cell phones uh, and other handheld devices, in order to produce their own narrative of events at the same time. And it was in this breakdown of a common understanding of what was even happening, where and when, that contributed to a generalized sense of. Um, as I say, epistemological uncertainty and inability to even establish the fundamental ground upon which one could um, experience, criticize, recoil from the realities surrounding people. From that premise, I argue that the efflorescence of Syrian cultural production from 2011 onward, which was remarkable in its scope, especially in terms of novelistic writing, but also through other forms, was animated by what I refer to as a documentary imperative, one of the ways in which artists and others sought to seize some kind of hold over their own phenomenological experience, the very experience of being and understanding reality around them was the need to document what was going on. So if one thinks about the cell phone footage that was uploaded out of the country at weekly demonstrations and elsewhere with people scrawling the date and the location on pieces of paper in front of the lens in order to somehow prove the reality of the film that people were seeing, one sees counterparts or analogs to this in literature and film. And what I tried to do in the book to give some kind of shape to this wave of work coming out around that time was to think about the politics of witness and to think about the speed of the Syria war. Part of the disorientation that resulted in this epistemological uncertainty had to do with the pace, the speed, the sense of acceleration that and exhilaration, to be sure, that was so pervasive during that period. Slow witnessing, for me, was a useful and I hope heuristic way of making sense of this social and cultural engagement with what political scientist Lisa Wedeen called high speed eventfulness in the civil war. Things were happening so fast, things were happening in such a widespread fashion that one struggled to keep up. And I found almost incredibly that Syrian writing, therefore, took up this challenge by turning towards documentation. And that applied to both fiction and nonfiction writing. So, to take the case that you mentioned, Samar Yezbek's Diaries of the Syrian Revolution interestingly straddled the line between memoir and fact finding mission. Samar Yezbek is a journalist, novelist, and activist from Jabla in northwestern Syria. And she cataloged the first hundred days of the Syrian uprising from March through June in the episodic diary format that both expressed her own struggle to keep herself and her daughter safe and also to keep herself sane through writing. That's the memoir. On the other side, the memoir and the diary entries describe Samar Yazbek's journey around Syria during this time of uncertainty and anxiety, speaking with people who participated in the revolution, monitoring events that took place, whether through her own eyewitness account or through monitoring the news on television. So, this work, which is itself raggedy and incomplete and does read a bit breathlessly, reflects the documentary imperative that, in this case, novelists come journalists were carrying out. I mentioned this is also playing out in fictional domains as well. So, Yesbek's memoir is in some ways legible alongside this unprecedented wave of novel writing that occurred in Syria. And I found this to be particularly striking, even unusual in the history of wartime. It is often said that journalism is the first draft of history. In the case of the Syria war, it really started to feel like novels were the first draft of history during this period. So you take uh, a novel, which I discuss in the book by a writer named Maha Hassan, a Syrian writer who lives in France. The protagonist of her 2012 novel, Drums of Love, Rima, is a Syrian French professor living in Paris who becomes radicalized by the Syrian revolution excitedly chatting online with someone involved in the local coordinating committees, which were some of the first on the ground and virtual assemblages put together by Syrian revolutionaries to coordinate their activities around the country uh, from both inside and outside. And Rima, the character in Drums of Love, is so animated by what is going on in her home country, that she decides to return to Syria in the midst of the events to seek out this man she has been communicating with, and in the process, reconnects with her family and friends who she has not seen for some time, encounters and observes the revolution itself uh, unfolding around her, and ultimately finds but is unable to connect with the man who she had first met online before leaving. Now this is another story of the kind of discovery of Syria in a time of revolution and war by writers, um, in in a fashion that is is unprecedented in Syrian literary history in its in its sense of documenting events through literary means in a kind of one to one correspondence a kind of mimetic relationship between literary prose and the world which as i mentioned was a relatively uncommon form of creative expression under bathist rule and so in that respect the the slow witness for me is a figure it might be an individual in the sense that samar yazbek takes her diary entries as an opportunity to bear witness to the unfolding syrian revolution and war uh but not falling prey to or getting sucked along by the demands of again, what would Dean calls high speed eventfulness, but the slow witness I contend might also be the novel itself novel. Even if it is being written breathlessly and in an accelerated pace to keep up with the demands of the moment, the novel form still accommodates space for thought, reflection and judgment in a way that journalism can, and some of the best journalism does, but which a form like the novel form is is better equipped to do. And in that respect, I thought slow witnessing would potentially be grounds for a conversation about how cultural production can directly engage with these fundamental questions of witnessing and testimony in a time of great upheaval.
2: Another artist you talk about who's involved in documenting is Osama Muhammad. And I found him interesting in part because you track him throughout the entire book. He's making movies under Hafez al-Assad, under Bashar, and then he's making these documentary movies as well during the war. So I thought maybe we can briefly but nonetheless talk about him and um, how you see his style developing over this time period and up to the point where he's doing some of these things you're talking about these novelists doing as well.
1: Uh, you're, you're right to point out that Osama Muhammad is one of the most important characters in, in my book. Uh, Osama Mohammed is a filmmaker born in Latakia in 1954, and uh, he has made a surprisingly small number of films, given the kind of outsized position that I would like to, to hold for, for him. He made two feature films over the course of the period of Hafez al-Assad's rule. The first, in 1988, Stars in Broad Daylight, is, I would say, universally acclaimed as one of the greatest Syrian films of all time and also one of the most politically subversive in that it directly tackles the questions of power, violence, masculinity, and social transformation that I mentioned are kind of key, are hallmarks of the Assadist Baptist ideological universe. His second feature film, Sacrifices, which came out in the year 2000, is much more difficult to categorize. It's much more dreamlike, surrealistic, Uh, It's plot meanders and is at times difficult to follow. It speaks in a more symbolist language, uh, but nonetheless is highly critical of patriarchal forms of domination, authoritarian power, violence of, uh, in this case, understood to be Syrian society, although there are relatively few references directly to Syria in that film. And Osama Mohammed's work, in a sense, for me represents the aesthetics of solidarity that I brought up earlier. And his work does exemplify the kind of communicative language of speaking with that I introduced before, given a kind of poly vocality, given a kind of highly populated story. There are numerous characters in both uh, of the films I mentioned, each of whom represents a different perspective. Moreover, in his formal capacity, Osama Mohammed is uh, along with his close companion and um, now deceased Syrian filmmaker Riyad Shaya was very committed to a kind of what I call a photographic aesthetic in his film, that is for him, the centrality of the shot and framing as a means of communication. So this does not only mean the composition of a given shot, but also frames within frames, mirrors and screens and and so on that give space to a kind of disorientation, but also calls attention to the power of a vision at the same time. And that style in the feature films that he made, uh, and I should also add, both of those films were supported by the Syrian National Film Organization, founded in 1963 and essentially the bedrock of film production in Syria. The National Film Organization determined which films could be made and when. And the juries or the committees that served within the National Film Organization were comprised of both bureaucrats, state functionaries, and artists. So Osama Mohammed himself served on these committees over the course of the 1980s and 90s, determining whose films could be made when. And he was permitted to, sponsored to make two films over the course of those two decades, one in 1988, as I said, and one in 2000. The feature films that Osama Mohammed made, however, uh, need to be seen in conjunction with his documentary work. His first film, which was his student film when he studied at the Vigik, the Institute for Cinematography in Moscow during the Soviet period, was released in 1979. It's a 23-minute short shot in black and white entitled Khatwa Khatwa, Step by Step. And the, this film is similarly a skewering of the sociological and the material foundations of power, violence, and domination, in this case, in the Syrian heartland in the Northwest. So through looking at the nature and functioning of everyday life, in people's homes, in schools, in workplaces, in the countryside, but then also in the city, Muhammad effectively calls attention to the contradictions and the conflicts at the core of Syrian society during this period. It's an extremely um, bleak film in a way. Uh, it's also an extremely realistic rendering of uh, its, and, and sensitive rendering of its of its characters. If we flash forward to the time of the revolution, Osama Mohammed left the country in May of 2011 to travel to Cannes in France, where he was going to be speaking on a panel about uh, film and politics. Because the revolution was en marche at that time, and Osama Mohammed is a known figure with dissident views having signed a whole number of petitions uh, writing in support of the revolution he decided that he would not return to the country for fear that he or his loved ones might receive retaliation and so he wound up staying in france where he is until where he has remained until today in 2014, he released a documentary that he made with the Kurdish Syrian filmmaker, We Am Simav Badul Khan, who was inside of Syria still in the city of Homs, central Syria. They co produced and made a film entitled Silvered Water Syria Self Portrait, which is itself a kind of attempt at what I have called slow witnessing the work is almost entirely drawn from found footage on the internet cell phone video and the like as well as some materials that we have um, we am simav bader khan herself collected from inside the country in addition to a series of sequences that um show the interaction and communication between Osama and we am online over the phone when possible and so on. The film is dedicated to what they call the thousand and one Syrians who contributed to the project through their various means, sort of a call to the, the famous thousand and one nights story and an attempt to turn the, trauma of the war into something like an imaginary folktale and there is a certain amount of aestheticizing the chaos in the film that some have found provocative or unpleasant one other feature of the film that has attracted a great deal of attention is its direct engagement with the physical injury and in some cases torture of Syrian bodies in the midst of the conflict. So, for example, there is a clip of a young boy who appears to be in some kind of a security station who is being beaten by a Mukhabarat agent and and then even sodomized by a truncheon. And there has been a huge debate within the Syrian intellectual and artistic community about representations of gore and atrocity at this Moment, and and I, I can say something more about that um, when we come to the to the end here. But the the film, by virtue of its attempt to incorporate voices and images that are provided in a sort of crowdsourced way, I think it's fair to say that what Badir Khan and Osama Muhammad have done here is a kind of collage, a visual representation of multiple voices and multiple experiences in a way that allows speaking with a kind of aesthetics of solidarity to emerge through the form of the work itself. And therefore, I also contend that a work such as Silvered Water Syria Self-Portrait might also represent the kind of impulse toward slow witnessing that I described, the sorting through of this found footage in an attempt to assume a posture of witnessing and also to draw the audience or the spectator into the position of witness as well.
2: Hmm. Well, so then you do bring me to to the last big question I wanted to ask, which is we Syrian people find themselves in this position where the regime is still in power and actually even now producing movies and uh, cultural products again. So you consider some of the things the regime is, is producing now. You consider some of the um, works that critics of the regime are producing now. You just mentioned the debates that are happening within the intellectual community over uh, pieces of art um, where do you think we we've arrived at how do some of these debates uh, p- or pieces of cultural production that you talk about at the end of the book how do they help us understand the present moment in Syria
1: yeah this this returns me to the conversation about periodization in a sense you know this is a this book revolution's aesthetic is a is a work of cultural history and historians are concerned with question of continuity and change over time. And while I do mark the years 2000 and 2011 as meaningful turning points, I also do think it's fair to say that there is a good deal of continuity in terms of the aesthetic ideology of the regime itself. And one finds in artistic debates, debates about the relationship between art and politics or aesthetics and politics in Syria since the time of the revolution and the war, one sees the state attempting to manage the contradictions of its own aesthetic ideology, which is to say the regime, as I mentioned, was committed to an unnamed yet nonetheless discernible cultural revolution an attempt to monopolize the role of revolutionary in politics as well as in aesthetics. During the time of the Syrian revolution from 2011 forward, this conceit on the part of the regime and its institutions was fundamentally challenged. Therefore, it came to be a site of struggle around what revolutionary and nationalist art would look like. For example, in the, the epilogue to the book, I discuss the legacy of the great Syrian filmmaker Omar Amir Alay as uh, one instance of this kind of struggle around, as I said, um, aesthetic ideology. Now, Omar Amir Alay was one of the most uh, adventurous and innovative documentarians trained in France, made a series of films from his perhaps best known everyday life in a Syrian village up and through the collaboration that he engaged with the uh, Syrian playwright, Saad uh, and other and other important films, such as um, an essay on the Euphrates, Dam, which was highly critical of the of the Hafaz al-Assad regime. When Omar Amir Alai um, passed away in 20, uh, the early 2010s, um, there was a debate about the legacy of his work. And the Syrian Minister of Culture at the time, Mohammed Al-Ahmad, uh, wrote a piece in which he uh, while lionizing Amir Ali for his contributions similarly pointed out that his work was more political than artistic. So, this line between the aesthetic and the political contribution of an artist in the Syrian case was to be policed, to be held up to a kind of ideological litmus test. And this is something that uh, is reflected in other work from the 2010s as well. And um, so in addition to uh, calling out Syrian artists who did not seem to be towing the line of the regime, there was also a kind of redoubled effort once life had returned close enough to a kind of normal that films could be made again. The The National Film Organization did begin sponsoring um, and making films again. Uh, one of the young and up and coming filmmakers who collaborated with the National Film Organization and still does is a man named Jude Said who became well known for his 2009 film, Another Day. Which, in a, in a sense, as Lisa Wadin has argued, reflects the kind of neoliberal fantasy of the Bashar al-Assad period in which Syrian individuals would be able to use the resources of a modernizing Syria opening to the world through technology and privatization in order to pursue the trappings of the good life. More important for the purposes of of my book uh, is a a series of films that he's made in the later 2010s, but I choose to focus on a 2017 film entitled uh, Homs Reign, Reign of the City of Homs in Central Syria, which is set in 2014 and which tells the story effectively an allegory of the revolution about a destroyed Pumps in the midst of civil war as heroic, ordinary Syrians attempt to withstand the onslaught of Islamist invaders who have taken over the city. Now, that story in its own right is uh, interesting for its political uh, decisions and um the lead characters wind up being a kind of ragtag improvised family a man who happens to be a veteran of the Syrian armed forces a woman who happens to be a revolutionary involved in the Syrian uprising and two orphan children they pick up along the way and end up making a kind of family of sorts what's particularly striking about this four part protagonist to the film is that the Syrian revolution and the Syrian state military forces are collapsed into a single actor that seeks to survive as war washes over the city brought about by the kind of interrupting actions of radical jihadists who have taken over the country that's one that's one aspect of a kind of ideological sleight of hand that the film Accomplishes the Syrian regime is nowhere to be seen. The regime is in a sense on its back heels, allying itself with ordinary people and to combat in order to combat this external threat, but even more dramatically and this I think it cuts to the heart of your question about how the regime has managed to reconstitute itself not only in terms of battlefield victories and so on but also in terms of capturing the cultural field. The film is shot in wartime humps. Now, there may not have been as dramatic fighting in 2016 when the film was shot as in, say, 2012 or 2014. However, the country is in ruins, Humps the city is flattened, demolished, and Jude Said and his crew had the support of the Syrian military, protecting the work of filming. So what we have here is the kind of aestheticization of the ruins of the Syrian civil war in order to serve the agenda of the state film organization, as it promoted its own narrative of the Syrian revolution and Syrian civil war itself. And in that respect, the contradictions at the core of what I have called throughout this book, the uh, agonistic struggle around aesthetic ideology comes to a kind of crescendo here, where the political and aesthetic categories of engagement, sociability, military struggle, leadership, national identity, and so on, are put forward in a way that is comprehensible and legible within the longer history of Syrian and Pan-Arab nationalism, within the context of the history of Syria's own intellectual um, history, but is disrupted in a way by the unmistakable reality of the ruination of the country and the capacity of the state to hold in place, to fix for a moment, to determine the historical significance of that moment in art. And I I think what we see until today is this kind of complicated... Set of struggles and debates and attempts to define and police the boundaries between regime art and non or anti regime art, even in the midst of such disintegration and ruination.
2: Well, I mean, it's a the book is a fascinating analysis and. You know, I've tried to ask you about a representative sample of the works you discuss, but listen, listeners will just have to go out and find the book, read it, and see for themselves because there's so many interesting works that you discuss, interesting points that you make, and um, I really learned a lot from it. So um, I'd, I'd, I'd like to th- I'd like to thank you for your time and ask you one last thing before we end, which is what I always ask, which is if you've turned your attention to new projects, either new um, works of scholarship or new translations, or what are you focusing on now?
1: Well, thanks so much for the kind words about the, the book. And um, it's really nice to talk to you. I am continuing to work on a number of translation projects and scholarly projects as well. The, the major, translation work that I'm now completing is a recent book by the Syrian dissident intellectual Yasin al-Haj Saleh, who left the country, left Syria in 2012, traveled, like many Syrians, to Turkey. Since then, he has moved to Germany and he has been in Berlin for the past years. His recent book is entitled Atrocity and its Representation, Reflections on a decimated Syria and the impossibility of reconstruction. And the book is, in a sense, uh, a kind of uh, well, it's a set of essays turned into a book that is a salvo in the debate I mentioned a moment ago about the ethics of representation in the time of the Syria war, specifically about whether and how one ought to engage with images and representations of atrocity, mass violence, genocide, rape, and so on. And Haj Saleh takes the Syrian case, not only the revolution and the war, but earlier, his own personal experience, his comrade's experience. He's a communist who was imprisoned for over 20 years in the notorious Tadmor prison complex and uh, uses the case of Syria to compare other cases, to compare against other cases of mass violence. So he looks at the Nazi Holocaust, Stalinist Russia, and thinks through why it is that one has an obligation, an ethical obligation to engage with these materials while there are others. And The book, in its English form, will include a roundtable discussion among other Syrian artists and writers who disagree with Yassin entirely or disagree in part with Yassin's argument and um, have claimed, as I suggested in the case of Osama Mohammed's film, in which the young boy is being abused and tortured in a security station, who argue that Displaying those images is itself a form of atrocity and that plastering the images or even stories of mangled and tortured and murdered Syrian bodies is, is a kind of unacceptable violence. So uh, that's in a sense uh, related to some of the issues I discuss in Revolutions Aesthetic, but it's also part of my commitment to translating Syrian writers in hopes that conversations that are thriving and essential uh, that are happening in Arabic should also be paid attention to by by folks in the English-speaking world. And related to that, yeah, I've now turned my attention to uh, an, writing an intellectual history of of modern Syria, one that will seek to understand the, the fundaments of the story that I've told in this book, understanding the history of Syrian nationalism, of Baathism, of constitutionalism, liberalism in Syria, but also to think about challenges from the mid to late 20th century about sectarianism, religion, secularism, thinking about engagements with aesthetic questions about form and about violence and about identity. And this is going to be uh, a work in process for some time to come. Uh, i I do think the 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 relevance of of revolutions aesthetic to this book um, will be apparent and I look forward to God willing in the coming years getting that book out and perhaps talking to you
2: about it yeah, well i I look forward to it as well both of those books so thank you very much for your time
1: thank you so much